You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Amen. Good morning. Merry Christmas to everyone. Only a few days out now, right? Everybody excited? I feel like this has been the longest Christmas season of my life. Um, I love Thanksgiving. So November 1st, my wife started playing Christmas music, which normally I, uh, I attest at that. And so uh, this year has been a little different year, so we've been okay with that. But Christmas is almost here, so it's glad. It's good to see each and every single one of y'all here this morning. And so we've been in this series talking about the women of Advent. And this morning we're going to be looking at uh, the fourth woman in the series, and her name is Ruth. And so if you want to start finding that book, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, you can find Ruth there. We'll be doing an overview of the book of Ruth and, uh, and then seeing how this is good news and hope for us here this morning, even in 2020 in Locust Grove, Georgia. Uh, and so uh, as we've been looking at this, though, something has been uh, really important in this series, and that's just the idea of identity, identity. And we see this all throughout our culture. Identity is the most important thing to us, Right? I know for me, I love Christmas, um, giving presents. I, I don't really, like getting presents, Shane doesn't, I mean, I'm just a difficult person to buy for. I love giving my kids presents. I like overspending on people. I just like the, the season, uh, the over excess, the holiday, the Santa Claus stuff. I'm just like, eh, whatevs. But I love giving presents at Christmas. But my identity Often, maybe you're like me. Maybe you can just sit in judgment of me. That's fine, either way. But my identity a lot of times is wrapped up in the gifts that I give. And so my identity right now is wrapped up in a table that I'm making for Shannon. And if the table fails, <laughs> um, either if I fail to finish it or if it, I put it in the dining room and it just fails, you know, um, like whichever one, my identity is in that to some degree. And so what we do, that's where we often find our identity, unfortunately, However, I was thinking this morning, I was like, what did, what did I give my kids last year for Christmas that your identity was wrapped up in, you know? What did you give your wife for Christmas? What did you need so badly to help your identity? And you can look at your wish list and, and all the things on there had to do with making your identity seem better. It's, this is, these are the things that I value. This is also college football season, right? And the NFL. I prefer the NFL. But this is college football season. We can look at our schedules and see what we value. Our identity is wrapped up in those things. This is who we are. And at the same time, our culture says identity means nothing. And so it is the most important thing to us. Yet, depending on how I'm born, I can change my identity in that, according to the culture. Things, the identity, your identity is the most important thing to you, and at the same time, it's the thing that can change most easily according to our culture. And so we have this crisis of identity, and we look here at Advent, we look at Christmas, and we get here, and this entire year has been an identity crisis. If you wear a mask, if you don't wear a mask, if you, um, if you support this person or don't support this person, if you cheer for this team or don't cheer for that team, if you spend this much money and not that much money, if you still have your job or don't have your job, our identity is wrapped up in those things. And by me simply seeing you wear a certain t-shirt or wear a certain slogan, I'm like, man, I'm chalking that person's identity up to this. You're like, no, I'm not, I'm not that concerned about my identity. I, I, don't, I don't do any of those things. But as, long, as soon as someone does something that you slightly disagree with, you're like, man, that identity is rubbing against my identity. My identity is better. 
It's incredibly important to us, yet our culture tells us, eh, it can change. Here's what I want us to see this morning. Big picture from the book of Ruth is that God redeems who you are to redeem how you live. So in this simple statement, there's uh, identity within it. There's identity as an indicator. There's an impact on the way that you live. So let's go to the book of Ruth. I don't have time. I guess I do, but you would say that I don't, and I would say that you don't have time to read the entire book of Ruth, and so we're not, and we'll just blame it on each other, and that's okay. So let's go to Ruth, though. Hopefully you're there with me. And I want us to see this morning how God redeems this woman and how he wants to redeem us in the way that we live. Ruth chapter 1. We'll begin the, ver- the first few verses here. And uh, these, these headers are really important as we go through Ruth kind of quickly this morning. Um, yeah, and so we'll just we'll notice those. those. Those headers, by the way, those little... Uh, the, the words in bold at the very top of each, each section, those weren't put there by the original author, of which Samuel is the author of Ruth. But those are called pericopes. Everybody say pericopes. You're welcome. So if you're ever on Jeopardy, I don't, what, what are those things called? Pericopes. Okay, that's for free. Verse number one. In the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. Okay, this is important. So the first couple we see here is Elimelech and Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Milan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So they were originally from Bethlehem, which in the Hebrew is Beit Lechem. Everybody say Beit Lechem. Okay, y'all can work on that one. Um, Pericope is a little bit easier. Uh, that means house of bread. We'll see how that factors in later. But bait means uh, tent or house or family of, and lechem is bread, okay? So they're from Bethlehem. There is a famine in the land of Bethlehem, and they go about 50 miles away to Moab. So where does Moab, where does it get its name from? Anybody know? Whose son? Lot. There we go. There's a Bible Bowl winner. Um, so Lot... His wife dies because she turns and looks at Sodom and Gomorrah. She turns into a pillar of salt. And my sons, when I told them this story a few weeks ago, they were like, can we go see her? I'm like, nah, that was like 3,000 years ago, bro. Uh, So she she turns, she looks back at Sodom and Gomorrah. She dies. So Lot has these two daughters who are with him. And so they get to this cave, and they're sitting there one night, and you can read about this uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, I think Genesis chapter 19. You can read about it there. And so the two girls, the two daughters say, man, we need some babies, but we don't have any husbands. So let's go get our dad drunk and then let's make some babies with him. And so that's what happens. One, the first night, the second one, the second night. Well, as a result, we have one of their sons named is Moab. And so from Moab's inception, literally, it's just wrought with sin. And so the whole country of Moab is just messed up. The capital of Moab is Moab, and the people from there are called Moabites. They worship a god called Chemosh, and it's just full of idolatry. And so this guy Elimelech says, man, we've got a famine in Bethlehem, which was a good place, but we're going to go over to Moab to hopefully find some food. Situation gets worse, way worse than a famine. He says in verse number three, but Elimelech, while they're there, the husband of Naomi died. And she was left with her two sons. 
They took Moabite wives. So these two sons, they had to find wives somewhere, and they take these just awful, dreadful sinners of wives, outcasts. The name of the first was Orpah, not Oprah, if you read that quickly. And the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Milan and Chilean died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So Naomi's husband, Elimelech, he dies over here in Moab. They've been there for about 10 years. And so she's left there without a husband, without her two sons. She has these two girls who marry into her family, Orpah and Ruth. And she's like, man, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I guess I'm going to go back to my home country. At least I know what's going on there. So let's go down. Uh, let's go over to verse uh, 16 in chapter one. So Naomi says, hey girls, you stay here. You have family here. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I have family there. You stay here. So uh, Orpah says, okay, I'll do that. I'll go back to my family. But Ruth said, verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And so Ruth says, nah. And right, right here, this is basically her conversion story. She says, your God is going to be my God. I've been worshiping this God, Kamash, but now your God, Yahweh, is going to be my God. So here she converses and says, I'm going to go back with you. And if you look right there at the end of, of chapter one, um, look at verse number 20. Naomi said to them, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. Why are names important? Because in Hebrew, Naomi means sweet. And Mara means, what's the opposite of sweet? Bitter. That's why I've never understood bittersweet chocolate. I, I, I don't know. I'm just a logical thinker. I can't get from point A to point B on that. She says, change my name from sweet to bitter. So Elimelech takes his family from Bethlehem to Moab in search of something better. And in the, mean, in the meantime, because of that, he's in the midst of destruction, of devastation, of disrepair. He dies, his sons die. So we have Naomi who changes her name to Mara. This is a bitter, terrible situation here in the land of Moab. But then we pick up in chapter two and it's a barley harvest season here. Chapter two, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. By the by, anybody know who Boaz's mom was? Rahab, there we go. Man, I wish I had like some gold stars to pass out or something. So Rahab, we looked at her a couple weeks ago. So we see how this is, it's like, man, Rahab is really important to the lineage of David. Well, so is Boaz. That's her son. Verse two, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So Naomi, or Naomi tells Ruth, she says, hey, I want you to go glean. We see in Leviticus chapter 23, this idea of those who are poor, those who are outcasts, those who don't have a whole lot going for them, they can go into the fields and they can glean some of the excess from around the fields. Now, this is, so the lowly, the outcast, those who are most desperate in need, and there's a new woman in town. She just comes back. She's not from here. Ruth isn't from here. She's an outcast. She's, she has no money. She has no future, no standing. And so this is like going saying, man, I guess I'll go serve soup at a, at a homeless shelter. It's kind of scary. Like these are really rough people and the guys there are really rough dudes. She's brand new in town. This takes a lot of faith, but what do we see at the end of chapter one? 
Her faith was great, and it was new. And she said, man, because of my faith in God, I'm willing to go do this. And she went to the field of this upstanding, righteous man, Boaz. Then we keep going in chapter 2. And she's there, and she goes, and um, Boaz protects her. Uh, Verse number 5. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So he takes notice of her. He's like, man, she's looking pretty nice. And she couldn't be that young, but she's still looking pretty nice. So because she'd been married for at least 10 years before. We don't know how old she is. Verse number 20, look there with me. So she gleans. Boaz says, hey, drink the best water. Uh, Make sure nobody messes with you. Here's a little bit of extra barley to take on your way. Verse number 20, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, talking about Boaz, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, was he naturally a close relative of Ruth's? No, she's an outcast. But Naomi, because of marriage, now Ruth is a close relative of Boaz through Naomi. So this is really good news. And we see that again in the book of Leviticus. It talks there, if someone is in need, if someone is in desperation, then someone can come in who's a close relative and redeem that person. Now, if something happens to my wife, my brother, if he were single, what it would mean, uh, or if something happened to my brother's wife, that means I would have to go and redeem her, bring her into my family, take care of her. That's the idea of redeeming. And uh, that would be strange if we still did that, did that today, wouldn't it? Uh, but for them, it was, it was not a big deal. They provided for, they took care, especially of these women, these redeemers who were close by. So he says in verse number 21, And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, uh, that you go out with this young woman, uh, lest in another field you be assaulted. So again, this is, this is scary stuff. Verse 23, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, so Boaz says, hey, um, you're looking good. You're doing a good job in my field. You can come work. So the rest of the barley harvest would be about six or seven weeks. And so Boaz says, hey, come work in my field for about six or seven weeks. And that's going well. But right here at the end of chapter two, it's nearing the end of barley season. And like most guys, Boaz has been scared to make the first move. So during this entire six or seven week period, he doesn't send her flowers. He doesn't send her a card. He doesn't ask her out. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't know when her birthday is or he can you know, post something on Facebook, whatever. He doesn't know. He doesn't do anything. So at the end of chapter two, going into chapter three, what we see is Naomi saying, man, our time is running out to be really close with this guy, Boaz. Here's the thing. Boaz is a godly, rich, single man bachelor who needs a wife. And through God's providence, we have Ruth, who is a probably pretty young lady in need of a rich dude who's godly and needs a husband, right? Any ladies in here, you're like, Shannon's like, yeah, a rich dude would be really nice. Sorry. So we have here the providence of God. And so Naomi going into chapter three says, we got to get a plan for this. We got we to rope this guy in. So chapter three, so Naomi says, hey, I want you to go uh, take off your, your cloak of mourning. And I want you to go take a bath good. So go take a bath, put on some perfume, put on some nice clothes, and I want you to go make yourself noticeable to him. So she says in verse number four, uh, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. So Boaz had been winnowing uh, barley all day. He had been getting it ready to sell, to take into the market. 
And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, probably from all that alcoholic-free eggnog, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. So uh, Boaz says, man, I'm done for the day. I'm going to go lay down. Now, some people are like, man, this seems a little promiscuous. It just seems a little weird that she's going in with this dude is laying down. It's not, it's nothing terrible happened. What kind of man is Boaz? He's a godly, righteous, upstanding man. We know this about him. However, we also know from later in this chapter that it's not the best idea in the world for her to be there as a woman because it can look kind of bad, but nothing bad happened. So verse number seven, middle of it, then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? So it's dark. He gets woken up, he's eaten and he's drunk, <laughs> and he can't figure out who she is. And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So they knew that he was close by, that he was a single guy, that he could redeem them according to Levitical law. And she says, hey, I'm here. Please take me as your wife. So she proposes that he proposes, and eventually we see that he does. Verse 10, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. So they have a little prayer service there. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. He's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. This seems like a really good arrangement. I'll do it for you. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. The same phrase right there in the Hebrew that's used in Proverbs 30, 31, by the way. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, but yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So this other redeemer had first dibs on Ruth. Verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet at his feet, right? So again, some people are like, hey, it seems kind of nothing at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, let it not, let it not be known that the woman came here to the threshing floor. So he's protecting her dignity, protecting her honor. So there's a closer redeemer. So she goes back, so Ruth goes back and tells Naomi at the very end of chapter three, uh, Naomi says, okay, we got to get this settled. We're going to figure this out today. Chapter four, we have, so we move from the threshing floor of Boaz to now, we know how the story ends, in the home of Boaz. Chapter four, the beginning there of this chapter is talking about how this other redeemer is like, hey, uh, Naomi and Ruth, they, there's this, so Boaz presents it as, hey, I've got this relative, they've got a bunch of land and some wealth and closer redeemer, we don't know his name, so he probably wasn't that good of a dude. Uh, would you like uh, all this land and this wealth? And the closer redeemer says, yeah. I would love this stuff. So then Boaz kind of slips this little bit of information in. Oh yeah, by the way, the collateral damage for having all of that is having this older lady, Naomi, and her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who's without husband. You gotta have both of them if you take this parcel of land. And the Redeemer says, nope, I'm not doing that because it's gonna mess up his inheritance for his kids. So he says, I'm not going to redeem her. So Boaz says, all right, let it be known. In front of these 10 elders at the city gate, he takes off his sandal. He says, I'm redeeming Ruth. And Ruth and Naomi are joyful. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says here, 
Here's how it all goes down. In verse nine, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and that belongs to Chilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the, the widow of Milan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So he says, I want his name to go on. So I'm taking Ruth to be my wife. Look at verse number 13. He says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now, that relationship between a man and a woman, it's got its place. It's a beautiful thing when it happens in the confines of marriage. And God says, this is where it's supposed to happen. And she'd been barren for 10 years. On her wedding night, she gets pregnant. The hand of God steps in and says, man, I'm going to show you my providence in every single one of these little small, minute situations. Verse 14, then the women said to who? Tamara? No, because Mara meant bitter. Is she bitter anymore? No. Now her life is back to being sweet. They said to Naomi, which means sweetness, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Now notice right here, as I was reading this um, a couple weeks ago, I was like, okay, yeah, they're they're here talking about Boaz. That's what it kind of sounds like, right? But notice this. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Did she give birth to Boaz? No, she gave birth to, to their son, Obed. So who are the women here in the city talking about when they say, uh, this redeemer, may his name be renowned in Israel. You shall be to him a restorer of life and a nourisher. They're saying this son, this gift from God, he is the one through this redeemer, Boaz, is bringing redemption through your line. And Naomi is like, yes, life is good. Life is sweet. The things that seem terrible, they're not so terrible anymore. This name Obed, they give him the name, which means literally worshiper or servant of God. May his name be so. He is our redeemer. And they keep going. A son's been born in Naomi. They named him Obed. This is verse 17. He was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of who? David, who we know as King David. Now, these are the generations, and we'll see those in a minute. But what began in chapter 1 with a funeral? It begins in devastation. It begins in desolation. It begins with a a miserable picture. There's famine in the land. They go to Moab, which is full of sin. It ends here with a wedding, with Ruth marrying this man of God, with a child from whom Jesus is going to come in his lineage. It ends here with this beautiful picture of a husband and a wife who both love God. We see the beginning of Ruth in chapter one. This is life without God. And by the end, we see this is life without under the wings, under the shelter, life with God. So it's a beautiful transformation. It's a beautiful redemption story, not just in their identity, but in the implications of that. God redeemed who they were so that he could redeem how they lived. But here's what's interesting. If you were to read through, you can do that in English or the Hebrew. Either way, the narrator never mentions God one time. Now the characters do. Naomi mentions God, Ruth, Boaz, the women in the city, they mention God. 
But the narrator never says, here's how God was weaving this together. Because the implication is all of these little small details of life, God was weaving those together. So he takes what seems like these human decisions in what seems like a terrible situation. And God says, I want to make from this my perfect will. And so in my providence, I'm going to take these things which seem mundane, these mundane details of life. And I'm going to use all of these things for my will. This is the purpose. It's God's purpose becoming reality in Ruth, in Ruth's family, in Boaz, and for generations to come. I, I would beg these questions of you. What is your purpose in life? We wrestle with that, right? That's our identity. And sometimes during this season, that kind of gets pushed to the back burner because we're just concerned with December 25th. But what is your purpose in life? And if God were removed from the equation of your life, would your purpose look any different? So if you say, here's my purpose in life, and I mean, honestly, I don't, I'm not asking you for a Sunday school answer. Hey, Jesus, I'm, I'm not, like, for real, what's your purpose in life? It's rhetorical, so you can answer it honestly. But if God were removed from the equation, would your purpose at all change? What are you pursuing with your life, even with the mundane details of your life? Are you like the Moabites who are pursuing sex and happiness and drugs, and pills, something to drink, some money to make, some sort of success, people to recognize you. What is your legacy going to be? I grew up most of my life beside, um, beside graveyards. And I, I told people in my life group this, they know this, but I wish we had a graveyard like right beside here. Because the Puritans used to say the graveyard was encouraging to them because as they walked to the place of worship of God, they could be reminded of those who came before them and they could be reminded that their life was short. What is your legacy going to be? Our time here on earth is very short. My, my kids, they barely know their grandparents. They don't even know my, my or their great-grandparents. Sorry, my bad. Uh, but they barely, they, don't, they barely know my grandparents. <laughs> They're over at our house like eight hours a day, so, um, which is really good. So uh, I know that sounded sarcastic, but there's a little bit of truth in all sarcasm, right? Uh, so uh, <laughs> my, my kids barely know their great-grandparents, and that's only a couple generations away. I know when my grandparents were my age, they thought, man, they were going to live forever and their legacy was going to be amazing. After a couple of generations, it's gone just like that. The legacy, the only legacy of my grandparents is how they followed Jesus and how their life reflected that or how they didn't and how their life reflected that. I could look at the lives of my parents and show you that. I could look at how they parented me and show you the influence of their parents Family, invest in your children. Invest in the kingdom of God. That is the only thing that is going to last. That is the only thing that's worth having a legacy, even in the mundane details of life. Let's go to Matthew chapter one. I want you to see this legacy that, uh, that this woman, Luth, uh, woman Ruth left. Matthew chapter one, and we've looked here a few different times. So Matthew's the first gospel in the New Testament. 
And I want you to consider what we said at the very beginning, that God redeems who you are to redeem how you live. Matthew chapter 1. We, we notice here, we can go through. I want, you to, I want to highlight just in these first six verses, we see all four women that we've looked at so far in the Advent. Now, Matthew, what was he before Jesus called him as a disciple? He was a tax collector, that's right. Were those good people? Nah, they were like the Moabites. People hated tax collectors because they were liars and they were cheats and they worked for the government and the government was corrupt and it was just a terrible situation. So nobody liked Matthew. He was what was called a, a, a mamzer, M-A-M-Z-E-R uh, in the Hebrew. It's a mamzer. It's an outcast. Nobody liked him. And so when Matthew writes his, his gospel to the Jews talking about the coming Messiah, he talks a lot, a lot more than the other gospels about Jesus going to other mamzers, to other outcasts. And so we see here in his lineage, which uh, Luke does not include Mary in his lineage until later, but Matthew includes her here. He includes Mary because he says, man, all of these women either supposedly or actually did have shady pasts. So we see here these four women. We see Tamar in verse number three. Uh, we see, we, and we talked about her a few weeks ago. We, we see Rahab in verse number five, who was the mother of Boaz. And then Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And then Obed, the father of Jesse. In verse six, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by who? Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. So these women have a shady past, but God still used them. God still used Ruth, this outcast. She wasn't an Israelite. She was a mamzer. And God decided to use her. Jesus came for who? Outcasts. Who are the outcasts today in Locust Grove? We are. We're not Israelites. We're not Jews. We are outcasts. We are Gentiles. Whatever you've done, whether you think it's really good or really bad, it's not enough for the glory of God to be in the same presence as you. You are an outcast. You need Jesus, and Jesus came for you. That's the beauty of this first chapter in Matthew, is that God uses these jacked up people, men and women both. If you look at verse number 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. Interesting number, right? Again, the providence of God. You can look at the Hebrew name of David, and, and this, is, this seems weird to us. It seems like, uh, you know, like we're trying to, like uh, Nostradamus kind of things. But if you, if you take David's name and you put a numerical value with it in the Hebrew language, which the, which the Jews did all the time, his name equals the number 14. It's all over the place because it's divisible by seven. So it's 14 generations. This is God working this out for his good, for his glory. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, how many generations? 14 generations. God's at work through every single generation. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 more generations. Matthew here is saying that all of history points to Jesus. Jesus was born and he died so that we could live and be reborn with him. So why was Jesus' birth, his existence necessary? Go back to Genesis chapter 3. We see this in verse number 15. We know that at the beginning of Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve, they decide to disobey God. But here's what God says in verse number 15 as he's, as he's dishing out condemnation on, on the serpent there, on Adam and on Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
And this is God the Father talking to the serpent here. And he says that for generation after generation after generation, from 14 generations to the next set of 14 generations to the next set of 14 generations, when Christ hits the scene, then Jesus is going to be there crushing the head of the serpent. And so for all of those generations, it was impossible for mankind in our fallen state to crush the head of the serpent. This right here is called the Proto-Evangelium. This is the, the first mention of the gospel, the evangelium, the good news. He says here, Jesus Christ is coming. And Jesus Christ, perfect life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is necessary for us to receive forgiveness. We cannot earn his favor in and of ourselves. That's religion. That's bad religion. Jesus Christ came and took on humanity to buy us back, to redeem us from death. So we have here two things at, at odds. One is religion, one is redemption. And this picture, this, this story of Ruth points to Jesus right here in Matthew chapter one. This is, this is the crux of human history. Here's what religion tells us. Religion says, obey God and he will love you. But redemption says, God loves us. Therefore, we get to obey him. I don't, I don't tell my kids that, hey, if you obey me, then I'll love you more. You obey me more, I love you more. That's not a loving father. But when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He pursues us in the midst of us being jacked up. He wants to use us. Religion says there are bad people like others, and there are good people like me. Redemption says, no, we're all bad. There are bad people who have repented, and there are bad people who have not repented. It's not bad versus good. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's the wrong question. Why do good things happen to bad people? Because now we're all in the same basket. That's all of us. So you're either a repentant person, which means you've turned from your sin, or you have not, and you are unrepentant. Those are the two options from God's perspective. Notice when Jesus came to earth, he came to the unrepentant people, the outcasts. And what did the outcasts do? They said, yeah, you know what? You're right. That's who we are. When he goes to the good people, the religious people, what do they do? They say, we want to kill you. If your repentance has not led to a changed lifestyle, you need to repent of your repentance. It is not enough for us to say, man, I'm, I'm just struggling with sin. I'm just struggling. And then the next week and the next month and the next year, I'm struggling with sin. It doesn't sound like you're struggling. It just doesn't. Are you repenting from that sin? Because good people don't need to repent. We're all bad people. We're all bad people. Ephesians chapter two, verse number four, but God redeemed us. Religion cares mostly about our birth, about our history, about our genealogy, about what we do, about what we know, about where we went to church, about our, uh, if we went to Awanas or not, if we go to Sunday school, about our knowledge, about how much we work, about how much we try to earn God's favor. But redemption is most concerned with your heart. It says that all these things, like these, these are good things, but are they pointing you to Jesus? Because at the moment of Ruth's redemption, what was she doing? She was sitting there waiting. She was being redeemed. Her decision didn't factor in that redemption. 
And we can principalize her life and look at her loyalty and look at her hardworking and, and look at her taking chances. And all those things are good and all those things are fine and all those things are true. But when she was redeemed, it was Boaz's work on her behalf. Redemption is the grace of God for us. We can't earn it. We don't even want it. Religion leads to pride. Religion, make, religion makes you a spiritual jerk. Ah, I just, I just tell like it is. I'm just trying to speak the truth. Well, congratulations, man. A lot of people have known the truth and a lot more truth than you, and they were still spiritual jerks. In fact, the most religious people were spiritual jerks. Re religion is what got Satan kicked out of heaven. His pride crept in and said, man, you, you deserve more. That pride is the same thing. I was talking to uh, Axel yesterday. We were talking about how a lot of times guys don't like to ask for directions. The same thing that gets us lost and the reason we can't find things in stores is our pride. That's the same thing that got Satan kicked out of heaven. And some of you are like, ah, yeah, I don't really struggle with pride. No, we do all the time. But redemption leads to humble joy. It's joy in knowing that we have been redeemed by God and he wants to redeem every part of us. No matter what you look like, no matter how much money you have in the bank, if you are a man or a woman, if you're black or white, if you're rich, poor, old, young, God is not done with you. You have not done enough in your past where God's like, I don't think I can use that. And you're not so good that God's like, oh, I definitely need to use you. He wants people who are humble. He wants people who are joyful. God wants to use you. Galatians chapter three, it says this. In verses 13 and 14, this is Christ redeeming us. Here's what I want to see is that Jesus Christ is a better kinsman redeemer than Boaz was. Here's what he does. Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. From the beginning, God has promised to defend his people, to protect his people, to deliver his people. He has promised to be our kinsman redeemer and is fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Hebrews chapter two, we saw this about a year ago as we were walking through Hebrews. Hebrews chapter two and verse 17 says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers, talking about Christ in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He came to identify with us so that he could be the sacrifice for us. It's not just Boaz stepping in and saying, you know what? Yeah, I want this. This looks good to me. We don't look good to God. We're outcasts and we're messed up, but God in his grace and his mercy, by the way, Boaz was a sinner. Jesus Christ was not. Yet Jesus Christ left glory to put on flesh. He left a throne and became a baby in a manger. He left eternity and he took on morality. He left forever communion with the Father and with the Spirit, with the Trinity, so that he could be beaten and abused by us stinking people that he came to redeem. That's love right there. That's a love that we can't fathom. 
We're so stuck in religion thinking that we can do something to earn his favor that we never even recognize his redemptive love for us. And his love doesn't just change our identity, who we are, but it changes the way that we live. So this Advent season, I would compel you, I would ask you to remember his first coming that he came as a suffering servant, that he came as the Messiah to fulfill the entire Old Testament, that he came as a baby who grew up without sin, that he was hated, beaten, despised by the most righteous, good, religious people. He was put on a cross. He took the wrath of God on himself. He died the death that we deserve to die after living completely, perfectly for us, perfectly obeying the law. They put him in the ground for three days. Yet he rose victorious through the power of the Spirit on the third day, defeating our greatest enemy. Back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. Remember these things. After walking here for 40 days, he says, all right, I'm going back up into heaven. A few days later was Pentecost. Ten days later, the Spirit shows up. He says, I want to empower my people. Remember the first coming of Christ. Remember who he has called us and created us to be. But also rejoice that Jesus Christ is coming again. Because at Advent, we don't just celebrate his first coming. These candles are here for us to grow with anticipation, knowing that Jesus Christ is coming again to rule and to reign in all power. He's not coming again as a baby. He's coming as a warrior. If you look at Revelation, he's coming in chapter 13 with a sword coming out of his mouth. He's coming in blazing white glory where you can barely look at him. That's the Jesus Christ that we serve. Remember the purpose of this season and his first coming. Rejoice in his second coming. And in the meantime, this in-between time, this already not yet as we call it, repent of your sin. Repent of your selfishness. Because Jesus Christ wants to redeem who you are so he can redeem how you live. As we consider who Jesus is and what he has done, we do this each and every week. We participate in communion. If you have your communion there, a cup, grab that. Hopefully you received one on the way in. This is for believers this morning. If you don't have a communion cup, you'd like to participate, can you raise your hand? We'll bring one to you. There's one over here to my left, Chris. Anybody else need one? A couple over here to my left. As you take that top clear piece of plastic off there, this piece of bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. Jesus Christ came from Beit Lechem, the house of bread. That's where he was born. But he is our source of life. He is the bread of life. He didn't just come from Bethlehem randomly. He's the source of life. His life was given so that we could live. So family, this morning, take, eat all of it. Next, that little piece of tinfoil comes off. This grape juice represents the blood that was shed. And the, the time of harvest, a barley harvest, is important because it's several weeks after Passover. Jewish calendar is very strict.
And so it's, it's right there after Passover on the Jewish calendar. It's a time of celebration. They celebrated the spirit passing over their houses and not killing their firstborn. But Jesus Christ comes as the Passover lamb. His blood is shed for his people, for his children. So that when the father looks at us, looks at who we are and what we do, he doesn't see nasty Michael Powell. He doesn't see Phil in your name. He sees Jesus' blood covering us, his life poured out. This is good news for us this morning. Even in the mundane details of your life, Jesus Christ wants to redeem those and use them and buy them back out of death for his glory. If you have been redeemed, if you would say, yes, I have been bought by Christ, this blood covers you, and he wants to use you. Jesus told his disciples, he said, take, drink ye all of it. Let's pray. Father, your grace to us is astounding. It's never-ending. It, it reaches the, the furthest parts of our minds, of our hearts, of our actions, of our, of our history. Father, I pray that we, as your local church here in Locust Grove, at South Point, I pray that we be reminded that you have redeemed us in our identity and you want to redeem every part of us. I pray that we would be living for you that your love and your mercy and your grace would take hold of even the deepest recesses of our minds. I pray that you would use us for your glory. Father, may we, may we be a repentant people in light of who you are and what you have done. We turn from the things which so easily and so quickly entangle us we put those things to death this morning. I pray that you would use us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.